Is it on now? Alrighty then. Let me start over. I just thought I had a big enough voice. I guess not. Okay, today we're going to start a new series, and I'm, I'm really stoked about it because uh, this, these next two books, there's so much in them, uh, and I really, really enjoy them. We're starting a series over First and Second Peter. It's two epistles or letters uh, credited to Peter, the Apostle Peter. Uh, and in this series, um, we're going to be studying how to spiritually uh, be successful in a hostile world. Now, um, I'll be honest with you, if there's ever been a time we need this, it's now, ever. I mean, we need this now. Uh, but the theme of this series is kind of twofold. Um, and both of them find their origin in preparedness. Uh, the first theme would be uh, God always prepares broken people to help other broken people. Uh, and the second is God always strengthens the people that he prepares to be successful, and especially during suffering. So I titled this series Prepared, uh, which is what I pray you know, Peter's words will inspire us to be. Now I also titled the message Introduction and Encouragement because Peter's preaching on encouragement and this is the introduction. And I'm that creative. Anyway, now, um, it's universally accepted that, you know, Peter wrote this epistle himself. Believe it or not, there's a lot of theologians out there who have a lot more time on their hands and common sense who debate authors of about every book because they have nothing better to do, I guess. But, you know, seeing as how it's called First and Second Peter, um, but yeah, it's pretty universally accepted that he was the one who wrote this book, and he wrote it around 60 to 64 A.D., now, Peter was not highly esteemed, and he was not highly educated, and he didn't have a, a great Jewish pedigree, so he wasn't respected uh, in that theory much with the Jews at that time, right? He was more like, um, he was the blue-collar apostle, if you will. He was like the blue-collar worker type, just like most of us, right? Now, he was notoriously impulsive, notoriously impulsive, and he often impulsively spoke without thinking, right? That's why I relate so well with him. Uh, and because of that impulsiveness, he stuck his foot in his mouth a lot. Another thing that helps me relate to him. He stuck his foot in his mouth many times in the scriptures. And historically, you'll find that Peter's failures are as well documented as his successes. One of the few apostles that you see that with. They're just as well documented. So much so that other than Jesus, he is the most mentioned name in the New Testament. Other than Jesus. And probably because he got himself in trouble with his mouth a lot. But he was... He, you know, he was mentioned a ton other than Jesus. He was, the, he was the, the most mentioned in the Bible. And that's why I think so many of us relate to him, because he's so, he's so real. He's like us. You see that he made mistakes. You see that he wasn't perfect. Now, many scholars believe that Peter was probably in Babylon uh, when he wrote these letters. And again, the purpose was to kind of prepare and encourage suffering believers to endure. Uh, and again, these are Jewish believers he's writing to. We'll look more at that here in a little bit. Uh, Peter also wrote to these Jewish believers, they, they think they were probably located throughout the area of the Turkish Peninsula, what it would be today. Now, getting to know Peter, now we're going to be going quite a bit in the introduction here before we get to the actual text, but you guys should be used to that at the beginning of a book by now. So Peter was a fisherman by trade, and that was kind of the family business because his father was a fisherman and, and his, uh, his brother Andrew was a fisherman, and they kind of had a family business working together fishing. Uh, and in fact, that's where Jesus met them. Because Jesus called Peter and Andrew away from being fishermen to follow him. Look at this, Matthew 4, 18. It says, One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will, make, or I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Now Peter, up to this point, hadn't done anything notable. He wasn't known for anything up to this point other than being a fisherman and kind of a loudmouth. He wasn't known for really anything. Just, he was just a normal fisherman. 
However, I mean, he was able to recognize the voice of God. Sometimes it's the most simple things that, that make the most sense to us. Sometimes when we clear out all the confusion, we understand God more just by listening. And he understood uh, and could recognize the voice of God when he heard it. Now, God saw past Peter's, you know, you know apparent simplicity of what people thought of him, past his profession. Uh, he saw past all that, and he knew that he had strong character and he had strong integrity. And he saw that in him, because God sees qualities in us we don't even know we have. That's why it's so important that we trust ourselves to him, right? And so God also knew that given the opportunity... Peter would be a strong force in helping them change the world for Jesus. He knew that. And so that's why Jesus called out to him. And as a result, uh, when Jesus called, he made the wisest choice anyone could make. I mean, they just, he and Andrew dropped everything they were doing, waved goodbye to their dad, and followed Jesus. Now, even a brief look at Scripture will reveal to us that Peter was by no means perfect. Okay, as I said. But if you notice, he was quick to repent, which David was a lot like that in the Old Testament. He made a ton of mistakes. He was always getting in trouble, but he was always quick to repent. And Peter was even quicker to bounce back after a failure. Sometimes when people struggle with or have a failure, they let it keep them down and define them for most of their lives. Peter wasn't like that. He was willing to bounce back quickly. He knew God had work for him to do, so he bounced back quick and always got back to work. Now, Peter always, you know, people always remember the stuff he did wrong. And mainly, what's the biggest thing? If I ask you what's the biggest thing you remember that Peter did wrong, what would you say? denied Jesus three times. Everybody remembers the fact that he denied Jesus three times right after his arrest. But we also forget that Peter did a lot of amazing things. See, he was the first one to really recognize Jesus as Messiah among the disciples or the apostles. In fact, Jesus spoke about Peter's strength and boldness and his faithfulness in great detail. If you look at Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, it said, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and other Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who answers? Simon Peter. Simon Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, which just means son of Jonah, uh, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That was basically just saying he would have the authority uh, to preach God's truth, and it would be honored. Now, so Jesus' statement about Peter was very powerful. But some people have misunderstood this, and I thought I should deal with this really quickly or as quickly as I'm capable of, um, because this is a big misunderstanding. A lot of people misunderstand this statement, and they misrepresent it. They interpret the statement as saying that the church was built on Peter. Does anybody have a problem with that? I do. I have a problem with that, and, and that's not what it's saying when you read it in the Greek. Because and to me, this is not just a gross misrepresentation of the Scripture. This is, kind of, this is kind of blasphemous to say that. And I say that because the church was built on Jesus, not any mere man, no matter how good they were, because at their best, we're still sinful. So this is really important that we take a look at this real quick. In fact, when you take a brief look at the Greek, I mean, even a brief look, the Greek will explain this and kind of dispel that myth. Uh, Jesus said, you are Peter. And Peter in the Greek is the word petros, petros, okay, meaning small stones. And petros was a layer of stones found like mixed in with the dirt that laid right on top of bedrock. 
That's what Petros was. The small stones, they were very hard stones, and they were found mixed in with the dirt that would be on top of bedrock. Okay? But then next, Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And this is where people get confused because it said, you know, they think Peter means rock. It means small stones. Right? And the word rock used here in the Greek is similar, but it's not the same. It's the word Petra. Petra, not Petros. Petra. And it means bedrock. So when he was saying you are Peter, he was making a distinction between Peter and his solid character and Jesus and what they would be building the church on. But what Jesus would build his church on was the profession that Peter just made. He said this right after Peter made this powerful profession. Look at Matthew 16, 16. He says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He was saying, that's what I will build my church on. See, the foundation or the bedrock of the church is understanding who Jesus is. That's the foundation. That's the bedrock of the church. And he is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, and he is the Savior of the world, right? And that is what he was talking about building his church on. Okay, not Peter. Jesus, the Son of God who is about to be crucified, wouldn't say, you're so awesome that I'm going to build a church on you, Peter, the one who's going to deny me three times. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, you have a lot of character. You're strong. You bounce back. But we're going to build the church on what you just confessed, the knowledge that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So that's very, very important. And don't take me wrong, this was still a powerful endorsement. I mean, he was saying that he had strong character. Uh, he was saying that, that he would be faithful, right? But he didn't build the church on Peter. I want to make sure we understand that. That was a powerful endorsement. Because, as I said earlier, Peter was not perfect. He wasn't perfect. But... God only expected perfection from Jesus, and I think sometimes we forget that. God knew the only person who would ever be sinless would be Jesus. When he chose his disciples and his apostles, he didn't choose them based on how close they could come to perfection. He based them on their humility. He chose them based on their humility and their willingness to surrender to him. That's what he, he chose them on. Now, despite all his flaws, though, you have to say Peter did faithfully serve Jesus before and after his crucifixion, and he witnessed, think about this, he witnessed all the miracles. Peter witnessed him feeding the 5,000. He witnessed him walking on water. Powerful, powerful things that he witnessed with him, right? And I believe that that empowered him. I think the reason Peter never gave up was he could not get out of his head who he was following here. The man he saw do amazing things is who he was following. And he's like, yeah, I make mistakes, but I cannot separate myself from him. And I wish more people would think like that when you make mistakes. Yes, I've made mistakes. I've sinned. But I know who I follow, I know what he's capable of, and I know that the promises he made, he's going to keep. And I know that this is not about me, it's about him. He never expected me to be perfect, he expects me to be faithful. And I, that's what, I just love that about Peter. And so uh, he followed him the rest of his life, all the way up until history teaches us he was martyred for his faith. Now, jumping into 1 Peter. So we're going to introduce the apostles in something called the Chosen. Peter 1.1 1, 1. says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who, those who reside as aliens. Now, this isn't talking like Area 51. Okay, when it says aliens, it just means foreigners in a strange land, right? People who are not indigenous, if you will, all right? So it says, Peter, an apostle of Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, uh, and Bithynia, who are chosen. You might want to underscore that. Verse 2 who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, listen, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. 
Okay, this is such an important verse. These, these, these two verses are so important. Again, these letters were written, I want to remind you, they were written to Jewish believers. These were traditional Jews who had converted to Christianity. They were believers in Jesus. And most think these Jewish believers were scattered for one main reason. Remember, Peter was, was uh, martyred publicly for his faith. And they believed that a lot of these Jewish Christians got scared because of that. And so that's what kind of made them scatter to different areas uh, around there uh, and scatter abroad because they were a little afraid of being killed also. Now, uh, they were most likely still Gentiles in this, in this congregation too, but it was mainly Jewish believers. Now, Peter was a disciple of Jesus, but notice he identified himself as the apostle of Jesus Christ. That's not contradictory terms. Disciple, uh, disciple in the Greek just means student, pupil, follower. It's metanoia in the Greek. It means student, pupil, or follower, right? Apostle means one sent or commissioned. And in this instance, it means one sent or commissioned by Jesus personally. If you were going to be an apostle, a biblical apostle of, of that time, now, in our day and age, by definition, literally, a missionary would be an apostle because they are sent by a church. But they wouldn't be this kind of apostle. These apostles had to be selected by Jesus personally to be considered an apostle of Jesus Christ. They had to be. Uh, and now, and he did this, the reason he brought that title up was, remember, people didn't really respect him at the beginning because he was just a common fisherman. He didn't have, you know, the training that the Apostle Paul had. He didn't have the education the Apostle Paul had, who was extremely educated. He was just a simple blue-collar man, and he wanted to remind them, don't get tripped up in what you think about me. Realize I'm sent by God to give you this message. The message I have is not my own. It's from him. It's from God. And so he told them that so that they would uh, understand that God had given them authority uh, to teach and to lead them. Now, one of the greatest debates in Scripture, one of the greatest debates in Scripture we're going to cover in these two verses. Okay, and that debate is who exactly is the chosen? Who exactly is the chosen? Anybody ever hear of that debate? Anybody? A few of you? Okay, you will now. So historically, God's people uh, were, or God's chosen people were the nation of Israel. Okay, also called, anybody know? The elect. They're also called the elect. Okay, however, the nation of Israel was chosen because they exercised faith in God. And I think we forget that. Look at Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 28. He said, for he is not a Jew who is one what? Outwardly. outwardly. Okay, think about that. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he... Uh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, okay? And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, God didn't choose Abraham because of his ethnicity. He didn't just say, I think Jewish people are superior. That had nothing to do with it. It wasn't about his ethnicity, and I think they got confused with that. That's not why God chose him. He chose him because he exercised amazing faith. Right? There were the, there were the, the children of Israel and the, and the people who went the other way. And the ones who were the children of Israel, they exercised the same faith as Abraham. And that's what made them chosen. And Peter said that they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And here's where a lot of debate happens. One thing you're going to find out if you get involved in a lot of theological circles and stuff, which I do not recommend. Okay, you're going to find out that there's a lot of, of ridiculous arguments that people have for no other reason than they're bored and they want to argue about something. That's basically what it is, okay? Because this is one of those arguments I wish would go away. But a lot of people want to argue about chosen according to the foreknowledge 
of God. Now, there are basically two camps in this debate, and these two camps have two totally different views of what the chosen are or the elect are. And because of that, there's a lot of debate about this, and, and I'm not really sure why, because they're picking the wrong section of Scripture to even have that debate, and I'll explain that, right? The first camp believes that the chosen are people chosen for salvation by God according to His sovereignty, not according to their faith. Okay, that's the first group of people, right? The other camp, or the other group of people, believes that the chosen are those that He knew would be saved, or He knew who would believe. Now, sadly... There are people that waste more time defending their theology on these camps than they do sharing Jesus Christ. So you know what? If you guys want to debate this, debate this. You debate the sovereignty, you debate the free will, and I'm going to share Jesus. Okay, because I don't have time for that. I want to share the Word of God. So it's just sad that that debate has taken up so much of people's time. But honestly, both, both arguments have some merit, right? However, neither argument is applicable here, and I'll explain why. Okay, the Bible does clearly teach that salvation is attained by exercising faith alone. And I didn't list all the references. I mean, John 3, 16, 3, 36, 524, 640. I mean, the list goes on and on. Okay, now, the Bible also clearly teaches that salvation is a part of God's sovereign will. So they both have an element of truth in them. And if you look, there's one passage we, that we quote a lot that actually addresses kind of both camps partially in one verse. John six forty says, for this is my Father's will. So we see the sovereign will of God. That all who see His Son, that word see there means to perceive or understand in the Greek. That all who see His Son and believe in Him, that means to be convinced of who He is, should have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. So both are addressed. But the truth is, Peter is not talking about either here. Because eternal life isn't the context here. We're not talking about eternal life in this context. The context here is suffering believers. The context is not unbelievers who are seeking God. That is not the context. And actually, there's only one Bible, uh, one book in the New Testament that's dedicated to teaching people how to find Jesus and believe, and that's the Gospel of John. Right? So this is not what's in play here, and I don't know why people get this so tied up. Would it have made sense for Peter to take all this time explaining how to be saved? To saved Jews? I mean, that's like me saying, are you a believer? Yeah, great, let me tell you how to get saved. You're like, that ship has sailed, my friend. You know, I'm already saved. Same thing, it wouldn't make sense for him to be talking to them here. All right, so let's look at verses 1 and 2 and see exactly what Peter was trying to say in context. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, there's his audience, believing Jews, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So Peter clearly described who the chosen were. He explains it. And he explains what they were chosen for, if you pay attention. Okay, the chosen, the chosen here were believers who were scattered throughout that area. He said that. To the chosen scattered... I mean, I don't know why that's... Why, that's a debate. He said that to the chosen who are scattered, you know, abroad, right? That's who they are. Then he explains what they were chosen for. They were chosen to obey Jesus Christ. When? During times of suffering. They were chosen to obey Jesus Christ during times of suffering. How were they to do that? Because they were going to be empowered by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 
He explains it right there, and we look right past it, I think because we just like fighting and arguing, right? So I, I think that, that has to be it because it doesn't make sense otherwise. So what Peter was saying is God knew who, given the opportunity, would stand strong, would endure suffering, and continue on in their faith and succeed. He knew that before he ever created the world. He knew that before he even you know, set the world in motion, he knew that there was going to be a man named Peter who wasn't going to be thought very highly of, who's going to be a simple fisherman, but put in the right situation, who would fight to the death for him and for the sake of sharing the gospel. And so he was chosen, chosen according to his foreknowledge to obey Jesus Christ by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be a powerful apostle during this time of struggle, right? And, and God knows those things before... People always, they struggle when I say God knows everything before it happens. And the debate is, people always say, well, if he knows it, does that mean he made it happen? Let me ask you a question. When you read a book, and someone asks you about the book, and because you've read it, you know all about it, you know the end of it. And they say, do you know how it ends? Yes. Then you must have wrote it. No, I have the knowledge of how it ends. I didn't write it. I have the knowledge of how it ends. God has the knowledge of how every scenario will play out. Okay, he is all-knowing. He knows those things. And so he knew who these people were who, who would be willing to suffer and yet remain faithful. So to, according to his foreknowledge, he gave them a special position. And that position was to glorify God in their suffering by not giving up. That was what he's talking about. Imagine how powerful that would be to people who were afraid of the Roman government, to people who were afraid of the Jewish council, because for a religious organization, they were scary. They'd have people put to death, you know? Generally not what we think of religious organizations doing, putting people to death, right? But people were scared of them. And then they see this fisherman who sticks his foot in his mouth all the time, right? Who's impulsive. And no matter what they do to him, no matter how many times they put him in jail, no matter how many times they beat him, he comes out preaching. And glorifying God, no matter what. And people had to start thinking to themselves, there must be power in serving this God. Because he is free. every time he gets put in prison, God opens the doors. Every time he gets beat, he comes out rejoicing and singing. There must be something to this faith that this man is teaching. Now, the Apostle Paul kind of addressed the same issue in Romans chapter 8. Look at this, Romans 8, verses 28 through 31. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of to those what? That's really important. The reason is people quote this all the time saying that, you know, oh, don't worry about it. God makes everything work out for Christians. That's, that's not what he says. Listen, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Love is an action, not a fuzzy feeling for the kids sitting across the table from you in art class. Okay? Love is an action. And so when he says to those who love God, he's saying God... Will, God causes all things to work together for those who prove their love and their service and faithfulness. That's what that means. I threw that in for free. Anyway, uh, work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he what? He foreknew. He predestined to become saved? No. He predestined to become conformed to the image and likeness of his son, of Jesus, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 
What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, what? Who is against us? This is really powerful, and I hope this helps you look at this differently. Notice the context and the verbiage used here, okay? Paul was comforting these Roman people by saying, listen, faithful believers have nothing to fear. You know, we had this pandemic, and you heard me preach on it a lot, and I had people ask me why, and I said because God told me. But during this pandemic, people acted like we didn't have any, we didn't have any promises from God anymore. Did you notice that? People acted like it was Armageddon. It was serious. Don't take me wrong. I'm not picking sides. I'm just saying, as believers, we should have been the ones standing up saying God will bring us through. And no matter what happens, I'm going to be with him. I trust him. I trust him in the rain. I trust him in the sun. I trust him when I'm sick. I trust him when I'm healthy. I trust him in a pandemic. That's what we should have been saying, right? Because, because, this is what he was trying to tell the Romans. He's saying, listen, God is faithful, and those who love him, who serve him, have, have nothing to fear. And by the faithful, he's talking about those whose faith never wavers. Or if it does, they bounce back quickly, no matter what. So basically, Paul was saying those who endured suffering would be identified with Jesus' suffering. This is really important. Because, see, Jesus faithfully suffered. We forget that sometimes. No one was persecuted more than Jesus. Right? Nobody was, was punished by the Jews and punished by the Romans more than Jesus. Right? And yet he suffered, he died, he defeated death, and he, was, and he was resurrected. And because of this, because of his faithfulness, God rewarded him and gave him a name above all people. You see that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I didn't have time to quote that today. But in the same way, likewise, I mean, those who faithfully suffer for God will also be rewarded like Jesus was rewarded. Not, not to that level, but in a similar fashion. will be identified like that, right? That's, it's really, really important. So how are, they, how are the faithful going to be rewarded? Well, Paul explained that in 2 uh, Timothy. And this is, I love this verse. I could preach a month on this verse. 2 Timothy 2, don't worry, I'm not going to, but I could. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. It's a trustworthy statement. That basically was Paul's way of saying, sit up and pay attention. What I'm about to say is important. Okay? He says, it is a trustworthy worthy statement, for if we died with him, capital H meaning Jesus, if we died with him, we will also what? Live with him. If we endure, we will also what? Reign with him. Remember that. If we deny him, he will also what? Deny us. Now listen, here's the modifier, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Okay, now remember, this was written to believers also, and I'm going to explain it. Paul was saying that those who faithfully suffer and endure suffering will reign, meaning reign with Jesus in that millennial kingdom that he's promised throughout the Bible. I had a guy tell me one time, there is no place in the Bible that talks about a thousand-year reign. I'm like, it literally is mentioned five times in one chapter. Literally. And not vaguely, it says, for a thousand years, five times. I'm like, probably be a good idea to read it, just not just carry it. But anyway, so those who suffer faithfully will reign with Jesus in this kingdom. But those who deny Jesus will be denied. They're not being denied their salvation. They're being denied the ability to reign with him. The worst punishment for a Jew was the thought of that messianic kingdom happening and them getting benched. That would like being making it to the finals and not getting to play. Okay, but this time you're not getting to play for a thousand years. That was the punishment for those who weren't faithful. They were denied the ability to reign with him. 
But in verse 13, he reminds us, regardless of how faithful one is or is not, all believers will go to heaven. Why? Because when we believe a part of God called the Holy Spirit lives in us. So when we die and stand before Jesus, if he were to deny us entrance, a part of him is inside of us. He would be denying himself. You see, I don't know why people get so freaked out over this verse. I think this is a powerful, powerful verse. It's saying that if you just give me your time and be dedicated, you will get to reign in that kingdom. If not, you won't get to. But know this, my love is greater than your mistakes. You're coming to heaven one way or another. You're coming to heaven. I, I just, I love that. So like Paul, Peter wanted to comfort his readers that, you know, with the same kind of promises that Paul was preaching. And he did this by, by reminding them that their faithfulness in serving God wouldn't go unrewarded. Look at 1 Peter verses 3 through 8. Let me check my time. Okay. Um, now this is kind of talking about how broken people can have unbreakable hope. 1 Peter 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 rather. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is perfecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, meaning deliverance, not meaning salvation of the soul. Remember, that's the word soteria in the Greek. It can be used several different ways. It means deliverance. He's talking to believers here. It's talking about deliverance. Until you receive his deliverance, which is ready to be revealed at the last day for all to see. What he's talking about there is the rapture and entrance into the kingdom. He's saying, just stay tough. This is not your home. This is not your home. I know you may not like who's in the White House. You may not like who's in the, you know, who's in the, the World Health Organization. You may not like how, how the things are going in the world. But know this, whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, or one of the other parties out there, God's in control, right? Not them. God's in control. And no matter what they do here, even if they destroy this earth, we have a promise that this is not our home. And that's what he was trying to encourage them with. So Peter comforted his readers by reminding them they're always safe and secure in Jesus. No matter what is going on in the world, they always are. Because even if their faith wavers, God's promises never waver. He always, always keeps them. See, the world can take away everything we own. And it cracks me up because most of us put our focus on having things. And we can't help it. We all do it. You know, we want to have the biggest retirement, the biggest bank account, lake homes. We want to have, you know, cars, boats. We want to, you know, we want to have toys, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if that becomes the focus of your life, realize that the government at any time can take it all from you. Every bit of it. I've known people who the IRS made a mistake and took their entire fortune, took their bank account, seized their homes, and then five years later, after fighting and spending tens of thousands of dollars, they go, whoops, I guess you did pay that. But they took everything they had in the meantime. Everything we have is volatile on this earth. It can be taken, everything, wealth, our health, our status, it can all be taken, but the one thing they can never take away is the promises God made to you. He's going to keep those, and the world can't do a thing about it, and it drives the enemy crazy right now i think sometimes we forget we're all broken people all of us sometimes christians get self-righteous and they get condescending but remember this even when you're at your best you're just the best broken sinner you can be but you're still a broken sinner no matter 
what? I think we forget that we're broken people. And no matter who or what we are, we all sin, and we all have moments of weakness, right? And I know I've heard people say that, you know, they don't sin. We call them liars. But I had a guy come up to me one time after church. I said this before, and, and he said, I, I have a problem with what you preached. I'm like, well, fantastic. What was that? He said, well, you said that everybody sins every day. And I go, yep. He goes, are you serious? I said, yeah, real serious. So is the Bible. It says it. He goes, I can tell you I have not sinned a day in three months. And I said, well, you did just now. He goes, what? And I said, you're lying. And he stormed out. He's never been back. I'm sure he knows I love him. But <laughs> So if you're watching, I do love you. You're just a liar. But anyway, just being honest. You know, but for years, I think churches and pastors and religious leaders have distorted the simple truth. That's what I love about Peter. He's just being honest. He's just being honest with him. I know you're going to suffer. I know it doesn't always, it's not always great here. But God is faithful. He's got better for you. I love that. But somehow we've drifted away from that. And people think if you scare people into thinking they have to be perfect, you can control people. And that's what it is. Religion loves to control people. That's why I don't like it. Right? Yes, a pastor said he doesn't like religion. I can't stand it. That's what crucified Jesus. Right? And, and we try to use, control people by saying, I'm going to motivate you this way. If you're not doing exactly what we say, you're not going to heaven. Listen, fear is a terrible, terrible motivator. You know, the best way to motivate people is just how Peter's doing it here. You're going to make mistakes. Heck, I denied Jesus three times. I can just hear him saying that. Why are you, you think you have problems? I'm one of the 12 chosen, and I denied him in front of a little girl. And then another little girl comes up, and I denied him again. And then another person comes up, and I denied him a third time. And he even told me I was going to do that. And I told him he was nuts, and yet I did it. But he forgave me, and here I am teaching you. There is hope. I love how Peter takes this. He motivates people with love, mercy, and the grace of God. And, and knowing we have a loving and, and compassionate and gracious Savior is a powerful motivator. Look what the writer of Hebrews said. Hebrews 4, 14. It says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. The high or this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced what? All the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. 16, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, meaning don't be afraid to come to God even when you've made mistakes because he's gracious, meaning he gives you love, he gives you what you do not deserve. Grace means unmerited favor. There, there we will receive his mercy and we will find the grace to help us when we need it most. That's a great motivator. Now some say that by teaching the power of God's grace and eternal security and how God never lets you go, that you're giving people a license to sin. You don't need a license. You're going to sin anyway. If by telling people that they sin, they're going to lose their salvation, you're giving them a license to be delusional because you make them think it's about them and not about God. Your salvation is not about you. It's about God. That's what it's about. Right? I say the truth never weakens anybody. And telling them you're eternally secure, telling them God will never abandon you doesn't weaken you. It should make you stronger and know that he loves you. Listen, if you're married, would you like to know every time you make a mistake, your spouse is going to leave you? Don't say that. Don't, you, know. <laughs> you know, me and Jenny were talking about this yesterday. No one thought we would make it. Not because of her. Because of me. 
They're like, she's marrying that guy? Are they serious? You know how crazy that guy is? He's wild. He will never stay there. 30 years later, here I am. That emboldens me in my relationship with Jenny to know she never left me, never bailed on me. And she probably should have, right? God loves us more than my wife loves me, and he'll never abandon you. I think that's so important. I think it makes us confident to step out for God and to recover from our failures faster. Now I'm going to try to close here in verses 6 and 7. It said, So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. See the encouragement? It says, These trials will show that Faith, uh, show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as a fire tests and purifies gold, uh, though your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong uh, through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Man, I love this. I love this. Peter wanted them to be joyous, even though they're suffering, because what he wanted them to understand was, you know, every time you endure a trial, you realize how genuine your faith is, and you're stronger and bolder to face the next one. I, I love that. When you think you are in a pit too deep for anyone to pull you out of, and God reaches his loving hand down and grabs you and pulls you out of that pit, you are not afraid of the pits anymore because you know God is with you in each one of those. Every trial we endure makes us get more and more confident. And those that witness how God comes through for us all the time, they know our faith is genuine. And they see our passion, and they know that God's working through us, and it draws them to Him. See, one day believers will stand before Jesus, and we're going to be re- uh, rewarded for our faithfulness. I talked about that, you know, what would be of the kingdom. And we'll be rewarded for those times we stood, even when we failed, even when we suffered. Especially when we suffered. That's what we'll be rewarded for. And as a reward, we get a reign with Jesus. I can't even imagine. Can you imagine a world where lawyers can't get guilty people off? Can you imagine a lawyer coming before Jesus and he's saying, shut it, I know. Can you imagine a world where we get perfect justice? Have we ever had that? You know, perfect justice, that time is coming. So every time you're tempted, don't give up. Because I'll finish with this verse. God has promised us he'll get us through it if we trust him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the temptations in your life are no different from what others have experienced. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. Now, you know when you hear people say, God won't give you more than you can bear. The Bible never says that. Here's what they're talking about. All right? The temptations in your life are no different from what others have experienced, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So this is Peter saying, I know this is tough. I know you're tempted to give up. But trust me. If you lean on him, he'll show you a door through the suffering into rejoicing. Just trust him. And they knew what Peter had gone through, and they believed it. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you, would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. And we don't ask people to come up front or do anything like that. I don't, I don't like pressure tactics. What we do is I want to pray for you. I know what it's like. To be sitting in the seats, confused, hurt, not knowing which way to turn. That's why I do this time, so that if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, or you just need prayer, just make eye contact with me, put your head right back down, bless those people, and I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to chase you down after church, bless those people. I'm not going to email you, text you, 
Snapchat, whatever. I'm just going to pray for you, and I do. And if you're watching or listening online, I'll be praying for you. Bless those people. Believers, I always say this, but I pray for us as much as I do anything because we are the tools that God is trying to use to change the lives of people with what time we have left. We've got to get more serious. We've got to realize what our first priority is. It's not being the richest. It's not being the most important. It's not having the most toys. It's not being the best looking. It's about what you do for Jesus before the time ends. Because we'll have plenty of time to suffer all the riches you can ever imagine when we are with Jesus. Now we need to work. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. And none of us can understand how you can love people like us. We constantly make mistakes. Even when we try to be good, we mess up. But your love is greater than our failures. And you sent your son to display that love on a cross so that all we had to do was believe that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee our eternal life. And your word promises if we believe that, we will have it. If someone makes that decision today, I pray whatever's holding them back, you clear it from their mind. And if they make that decision today, I pray they contact us because we would love to walk with them in this journey. And God, for those of us who are believers, please let us get focused. Let us get our eyes back on the path, not worry about what's happening on the news, not worry about what's happening, the arguments, the debates, the politics. Let's focus on that road that you've placed us on to be disciples, students, to draw people to you so that they can spend eternity with you. Let us focus on what matters because a million years from now, that's all that's going to matter. We just pray, God, as we leave here, that you would keep us safe and let us live what we profess. And if you don't return before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise you're worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.